Hello, and welcome to the MVP, the Mass Violence Podcast, the official podcast of the National Mass Violence Victimization Resource Center. I'm Dan Smith, the Director of Resources and Technology for the NMVVRC, and this is a pretty special episode of the MVP today, and I'm really excited to be bringing it to you. The week of April 18th to the 24th marks the 40th anniversary of National Crime Victims' Rights Week. This week is a time-honored tradition in the victim survivor services field. It's a time to collectively recognize the impact of crime on victims, survivors, and entire communities. And it's a time to promote important victims' rights and services. This year, the National Crime Victims' Rights Week theme is Support Victims, Build Trust, Engage Communities. And that's really an accurate description of the ongoing work of what we're doing in the National Mass Violence Victimization Resource Center. Um, With me today are three legendary experts in victims' rights in the United States, and they are uh, Dr. Dean Kilpatrick, who is the director of the NMVVRC, Aurelia Sands-Bell, who is a uh, faculty member in the NMVVRC here in Charleston, and Anne Seymour, the center's Associate Academic Program Director. All three of my guests have been immersed in the victim assistance field for about as long as the field has existed, and certainly as long as the field has been observing National Crime Victims' Rights Week. And I couldn't be more excited to be with them to talk about this uh, important milestone with you. And um, not only are they experts, um, they make me feel young uh, because they've been doing this a lot longer than I have. Uh, so the first thing I wanted to do a little bit, cause I think some folks in our audience are probably unaware or unfamiliar with just the concept and history of national crime victims rights week and how the, the theme of the 2021 week reflects the work of the national mass violence victimization resource center and truly thousands of other organizations around the country that help crime victims and survivors. And so Dean, I'd like to start off with you. Not only are you the director of the NMVVRC, but you also direct the National Crime Victims Research and Treatment Center here at MUSC. You started this center in 1977. Um, I won't mention how old I wasn't at that particular time. So you've actually been around and doing victim services work before National Crime Victims Rights Week actually started. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of National Crime Victims' Rights Week and why it's so important to to recognize crime victims' rights? Happy to do that, Dan. Uh, I think it's nice also to have some perspective from what things were like before Crime Victims' Rights Week. Basically, uh, the field before National Crime Victims' Rights Week was really not a unified field at all. It was a a bunch of people who are working in different areas, some with sexual violence, some with uh, domestic violence, some with child abuse uh, and whatnot, a few people working with uh, homicide uh, victims or or the family members thereof. But in in 1981, uh, which coincidentally maybe was uh, uh, about uh, the the year in which uh, uh, President Reagan was shot, Uh, And then about 10 or 20 days later, in April of that year, he put forth a presidential uh, proclamation that stated that it would be National Crime Victims Rights Week. 
And what that did was to uh, focus the attention of the nation on the plight of crime victims and the importance of uh, bringing them to the table in terms of the criminal justice system process and others. And and actually that started uh, a very important movement of uh, because there was a uh, national commission on victims of crime that the president also appointed at about that time. And as a result of that, there was a careful study of uh, how mistreated crime victims were and what their needs were. And, um, and, and that ultimately resulted in the uh, enactment of, you know, congressionally, uh, and there was a law that set up uh, the Office for Victims of Crime, which is really kind of the mothership for all kinds of crime victims work in the nation now, as well as uh, mass violence being a part of that. So I think the importance of it really was that it it really highlighted um, the issue of crime victims and their need to have rights that were equal to those of criminal defendants and their rights to be treated at least as well as criminal uh, defendants are in, in the criminal justice system. So it was a pretty big deal. Excellent. Okay. So um, the... The things that that happen next, um, and it, does um, National Crime Victims Rights Week always kind of have a theme, or is that uh, sort of a, a new thing, as far as you know? Well, I think it does uh, has always had a theme. The theme differs from year to year. Uh, sometimes the themes kind of repeat themselves in terms of victims' needs and whatnot. But the idea is that within the field, which has now gotten bigger and bigger, broader and broader, because it has consolidated uh, all kinds of crime victims, uh, every year they just focus on a, on a different aspect of that. Anne or Aurelia, do you have any sort of historical perspective on, on where Crime Victims' Rights Week came from? Do you anything you wanted to add? Well, I think, you know, as, as far as I, um, you know, having been in the field, as you have stated so long, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've seen it grow and take on new challenges uh, each year. Uh, there is, uh, and you're going to talk more about how people can get more information about it, but it's important because it says to the country how important it is for us to stop and think about people whose lives have been changed and altered by crime and that it's incumbent upon not just that victim going through it, but it means that all systems need to come together uh, in a unified way in the recognition of crime victims and the treatment of crime victims. So it's a really a powerful time. And it also says to victims that we see you, mm-hmm. we're with you. Yeah. yeah. And Dan, can I also add that Victims Rights Week is a time where we get to honor those who bring great honor to crime victims and survivors. And across the country every year, uh, people have beautiful award ceremonies. Um, it's important for us to recognize folks like the U.S. attorneys across the country who every day collect fines and fees that go into the Crime Victims Fund, the VOCA mm-hmm. Fund, that supports victim services uh, nationwide. Not taxpayers' dollars. It's actually paid 
um, by fines and fees collected, again, by the U.S. attorneys. And so it's a time to really thank the victim advocates, the first responders, the community leaders um, who support victims, not only during Crime Victims' Rights Week, but every single day of the year. Those are both just fantastic points and really does sort of help focus um, kind of what uh, National Crime Victims' Rights Week really is all about. And and as, as Aurelia said, you know, really sort of letting folks know whether they're crime victims or folks helping crime victims that they are seen and that what they do really matters. Let's dive into this year's theme um, and start talking about the different parts of it. Support victims, build trust, engage communities. And let's start from the top of that and talk about support for victims and survivors. Dean, what kind of support, uh, you're, you're the mental health guy here, um, what, what kind of support do survivors of mass violence or any other type of violent crime typically need? Well, I think uh, they have lots of needs. And one of the biggest needs that they have is the need for information. And one of the things that we do at the National Mass Violence Victimization Resource Center is that we pull together the best information about what kind of problems uh, victims might be having, or I mean, they don't, not all victims have them, but, but a, a, a lot of them do. Um, what are ways that you can uh, mitigate some of the problems or avoid developing some of the problems you might have? And normalizing uh, natural reactions people have to being put in a situation, in the case of mass violence, of just overwhelming stress. And in many cases, if, if you've lost a family member to mass violence, overwhelming uh, loss. So by providing accurate information, that's helpful because people know that what they're going through is normal. Uh, they know when it's getting a little bit out of normal and, and that it, they might need some help. Uh, and then we also have information about how you can get help. Uh, and we actually have some tools that we may talk about later that actually can provide people with information and some self-help tools that can be used to, to help deal with these things. There's also something which did not really exist very many places until uh, the early 80s, which is called crime victims' compensation. So when someone is physically injured, uh, they're psychologically injured, or they're financially injured as a part of a violent crime, what crime victims' compensation does is that if you're eligible, it's a, it's a payer of last resort mm -hmm. that can help pick up medical bills. It can help with psychological counseling. It actually, in most states, pays for uh, at least part of, of uh, funeral expenses as well. So that's a, that's a really important thing. And we at the center, uh, certainly in terms of supporting victims, one way of supporting them is to hook them up with services and programs that can help them deal with some of the issues that, that inevitably come up. And Dean, is that, is that compensation, is that the funds that um, Anne was talking about that um, are collected from uh, fines and fees and penalties that, um, that uh, get yes. collected? Okay. Yes. And that, and that actually is important to note that there is a state uh, Victim of Crime Act fund or VOCA fund, which is from federal uh, fees and forfeitures in federal cases, but that many states or all states really 
many of them use that as a, as a similar mechanism for funding uh, programs at the state level as well. So one of the things that we can do to support victims is to let them know about crime victim compensation um, in their state as well as um, you know any other resources they might need. One of the things that I always wonder about, and I guess I'll direct this question to Aurelia, because I know that you've spent um, a lot of your career directly working with victims of crime, the social support needs that victims have. um, I mean, I think there's this sense, perhaps, that when someone gets victimized by crime, there's always a massive outpouring of support, people bringing casseroles and, and things like that. Is that is that an accurate perception? I think you're right to this extent. People don't recognize that um, trauma that's created by a criminal act can be long-term. The recovery process can be long-term and people don't always have the kind of support that's sturdy enough, strong enough, able to endure that long haul recovery. Mm -hmm. And so people make assumptions about, you know, that happened a year ago. You should be okay now. You Mm -hmm. should be over it now. And that's just not how recovery and mental health um, improvements uh, occur. In terms of how do you get support and what's necessary for support are, you know, different issues. But yes, you're absolutely right. Um, many people don't have the mechanisms or the level of support they need uh, in order to go the distance towards recovery. And so we see some pretty bad outcomes. Yeah. One of the ways that victim services can be available in communities to provide that missing uh, support, that missing friendship or family or whatever kind of support people need to get through advocacy and mental health can fill those voids. That's a great point. It really brings to mind what um, Ben Saunders said in one of our earliest podcasts when he sort of talked about in the aftermath of mass violence, there's this initial mass outpouring of support and everybody sends a teddy bear and, and, you know, Mm -hmm. wants to donate money within the first week or two. And then, media attention moves on, the world moves on, and the community is still there, still recovering, and still needing a lot of support, a lot of resources, and yet the attention of the world has moved on. And I think what you're talking about sort of takes that to a much smaller scale at the individual level. And and I think that's a great, a great point for folks to realize is support is not just necessary in the immediate aftermath, but as sort of an ongoing thing because the impact of crime can be so long-lasting. And an unfortunate example of that, uh, or illustration of it, has happened this year because we started with uh, an insurrection at the Capitol, and then we moved on to uh, spree shooting in the Atlanta area, and then we moved on to the shooting in the Denver area in the supermarket. And uh, just yesterday, as we're recording this, there was another mass violence incident in California. So uh, unfortunately, the pace of this is, is that even when you're having large scale uh, events that get national publicity, 
the news media and the attention of the nation moves on to the next one mm -hmm. and then the next mm -hmm. one and the next one. And what we don't realize too, or many people don't, is that when these new events happen, it also rubs salt in the wounds of the victims of prior mass violence mm -hmm. uh, events that may have happened years and years ago. Yeah. So it's something that never stops and, and it, it gets uh, aggravated with every new thing that happens. That's a great point, Dean. I think that's actually something that we're going to plan a future podcast around is sort of talking about the um, helping people understand uh, how how events can trigger or bring up memories of, of past events and, you know, how what's happening today helps keep alive what happened 5, 10, 15 years ago. Um, that's a really good point. And Dan, Dan, I... I want to add, and, and I thank Dean for recognizing the fact that we've had, um, you know, we've, I just heard today, 20 mass violence incidents this year. And our work at the center brings together the resiliency centers that do the longer term support work that Aurelia was talking about. And in the past couple of weeks, you know, we saw them reaching out to Boulder, reaching out to greater Atlanta, reaching out to a smaller mass violence incident in Wisconsin. We saw the folks in Colorado helping the folks in Atlanta, you know, understand the considerations for setting up a healing fund. And so um, it, it's just it's it's a beautiful thing to me that folks who have gone through this before are so willing to help those who follow in the devastating path in the future by becoming mass violence victims. And and we at the center, you know, every time there's a mass violence event, we, we do learn from it and we do share lessons learned um, mm -hmm. from, from previous events. And I think that's one of the the, the really important uh, things about the work of our center. Yeah. And, you know, for folks who are looking for resources, our, our website uh, for the NMVVRC, which is nmvvrc.org, um, contains a lot of information, sort of background information about the impact of crime on victims, as well as some tip sheets, resources for survivors. Um, if you're a mental health professional who uh, is is looking to expand your services or who wants to get better at providing services. There's information related to training and evidence-based treatments for these things all on our website at uh, nmvvrc.org. Shameless plug of, of our website there. Um, let's move on to the next component of this year's theme, which is building trust. And Aurelia, I, I want to sort of start with you on this one. You know, of all the three parts of this year's theme. This one, you know, sort of spoke to me in terms of it's, it's different. Who are we building trust with? What, what goes into that process of building trust? Okay. Well, I thought about that too. And I thought, first of all, it's important to, to recognize that a criminal act can uh, leave trauma with that individual. So people who have experienced uh, a criminal act, they've, they've been injured, they're lost, uh, they've lost loved ones, uh, people around them have been killed, or their lives in some way have been turned upside down. And now they have to figure out how and who to trust as they start to move towards hopefully recovery. But when we first encounter them, recovery is probably not the first thing they're thinking about. They're just thinking about how to cope. And 
Yet that must be our goal as advocates and mental health persons is to help them get to a place of recovery. So the first step, in my opinion, begins with building trust with that individual. So we have to learn how to help them trust themselves again, their instincts, their decision-making process, because their core beliefs and core values have now been challenged and changed by this incident. And so after we deal with that individual, we have to look at what's happening with our community as a whole. And we have to get, I kind of think about things in bullet points, Dan, because it's, mm-hmm. it's easier for me to think about how do we start to get input from everybody in a community, whether they've been marginalized or whether they have traditionally been underserved. It's important that their voices are heard. We have to address what they need and we have to ask what they need and not assume that we know. We have to make certain that we're addressing the needs of persons who are differently abled or disabled within our community. And sometimes their needs aren't addressed at all. I think it's important to share information that's accurate, that's timely, and that's delivered sensitively. That's key. And there's some ways that we figured out, as Ann talked about, that we've learned how to do that over the process of dealing with mass violence incidents. We have to allow, as we move forward with community trust, allow for the a wide range of emotions that people may have. They're going to be angry and they're not going to be happy. And sometimes we might get the brunt of that, but don't take it personally. We have to have helpers, mental health and advocates in place at all meetings and at all times available to help because the pain isn't just in the day, but it's at night. It can be any time, have people available. We also have to build community trust by working to prevent gaps in services. And we saw that uh, displayed in our gatekeepers model of the Victim Services 2000. You can find that document online. It was done by Denver. Colorado, but we want to, you know, close any gaps in services in our community. And I just say to people that we need to take our time as we work with populations and building trust because recovery is not an overnight process. Mm-hmm. We need to be there for the long haul. And Ann talked about resiliency centers, one of the best inventions, if you will, I feel we have to be there for the long haul. So uh, I'm just thinking of some of the communities that have experienced mass violence incidents over the past four or five years, you know, from big cities like New York or Las Vegas or Orlando to smaller communities like Sutherland Springs and things like that. Do those communities, do, do they kind of have equal access to victim services? Is it is it as, you know, everybody can find law enforcement, right? Is, mm-hmm. is, it, is it as simple as that, that victim services are as, as uniformly spread out as some of the sort of bedrock uh, social services? I think you're correct. I mean, it's not, it's not equal. It's not. Okay. And you're going to find that there's different levels of help available in different communities. Gotcha. Communities hopefully are learning the importance of planning and looking forward to how they can have these kinds of services in place. But most people don't think it'll ever, it won't ever happen here in anywhere, right. uh, South Carolina or anywhere uh, North uh, Dakota. It won't happen, but yeah, it will and it can. So some of our communities are not faring well because they don't have some 
sometimes very simple things like uh, broadband access. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's just data. something you take for granted, right? Is is access to high speed internet, and that's exactly. just not the reality. Yeah, exactly. And so they don't have some of the services that are available in other communities. But if they had the ability to at least engage engage through a telecommunications, that would be helpful. So there's a lot that we're learning and and helping to put uh, and build trust again for people as they are engaging in the helping and in, in learning and, and getting help. You know, we're trying really hard to, uh, we have to all try really hard to build the trust that people need because they've been violated in such a deep and core way. And it takes everybody. It takes our communities of faith, our civic organizations, our schools, everything, our law enforcement, our prosecutors, everybody coming to the table to help. Yeah, and Dan, I, I want to add uh, that the beautiful thing of our field is that we are uh, slowly but steadily moving online. I think about the 1 October attack in Las Vegas and the resiliency center there. Um, I don't know if folks know, but many of the victims were not from Las Vegas. They were there as visitors. And so they have moved so many of their services available in English and Spanish um, online on their website. And I think about, um, it's hard to believe it's the 20 year anniversary of the terrorist attacks in New York City, Shanksville, and here in DC. And if you visit Mary Fetchett's website, The Voices of 9-11, it's so robust with ongoing information 20 years later for survivors, for self-help, for victim advocates, and uh, special attention paid to first responders. So we're kind of just now catching up with the concept of teleservice, and that has been a real answer to the problem that you and Aurelia just addressed, which is the inequality um, of victim services. If things are online, it, it, it does have more, more access uh, for the people who need them. I, I would uh, add to that that there are very few uh, silver linings to the cloud of the pandemic. But one of those has been that all of us have been forced kicking and screaming to get away from a model where someone has to be in our physical space for us to be able to deliver service to them. And and whereas, uh, you know, Dan, as you pointed out, there are people and places that don't have access to high speed Internet, which certainly makes it. Uh, more difficult, but we uh, we already were doing some tele mental health counseling. We also um, you were very involved in that. Uh, developed uh, an online app that could be used uh, to help with with providing information. But particularly for mass violence, some of these places like like the Boston Marathon. Uh, bombing was one. Uh, certainly Las Vegas was one. Even the Mother Emanuel uh, shooting here in Charleston was one in which it turned out that even though all of the victims were local because they were church members of the Mother Emanuel AME Church, their family members were from several different states. So we learned by setting up a brick and mortar resiliency center uh, designed to or as we called it, the Empowerment Center, designed to help people. But it turned out that many people could not use those service services locally because they didn't live here. 
They didn't live in South Carolina. They lived in other places. So one of the challenges for the field is to uh, adapt to situations and make sure that those services can be available where the person is, however small a place or where that might be. That's a really good point and I think does sort of reflect how technology um, it plays a role. Um, and, and that's, you know, we'll talk a little bit right at the end about how we're trying to use technology to participate more in National Crime Victims' Rights Week this week as well. But let's move on to the final theme, um, the final element of the 2021 theme for National Crime Victims' Rights Week, and that's engage communities. And I'm going to start with you on this one, Anne. Um, what does community engagement look like when it comes to victims and and survivors of crime? Well, it it looks different based upon uh, where and what a community is, Um, where is location, obviously. But what is uh, the what part is how communities define themselves. And if I think about the different types of mass violence that have occurred, you had um, it at Tree of Life in Pittsburgh, it was three synagogues. It was a Jewish community. Um, with the school shootings, it is a community of, um, of students and their teachers and their principals and, and their school boards and their parents. And we just need to recognize that it's important to allow communities to define themselves and to provide uh, resources that are culturally specific to each, um, to each community. When a mass violence incident occurs, I mean, there are some really obvious things. We've already mentioned the, the donations and, and the teddy bears. But there's also a lot of direct victim support, and Aurelia touched on social support. I mean, that is literally one of the key factors in a, the capacity of a victim to be able to recover. So making sure that the community is there to help victims, not just in the immediate aftermath, but in the, the long run. And then we're working with a lot of the resiliency centers who are creating permanent memorials to uh, mass violence events and to the crime victims and survivors that are so important to recognize uh, what has been lost and what has been changed and devastated in the aftermath of mass violence. And here at the center, you know, when I look at our partners, the uh, the National Governors Association, the American Hospital Association, and the, um, the mayors, I mean, there's a community of partners that are essential in following on to, um, to, to mass violence. And when you think about any of the incidents that we've discussed already, it was the state and local leadership that really um, helped form that sense of community after after a mass violence event. We create communities here at the National Mass Violence Victimization Resource Center through our work with, uh, we have two forums for resiliency center directors. We do a lot of work uh, on training and mental health for folks who work in schools. Uh, we're doing uh, helping out in some states that are developing really survivor-centered protocols that um, I, I'm just so proud to say our work in Tennessee is very community-based um, from the bottom up, not the top down, and really looking to harness community resources. And I think it's important, uh, Dan, you know my hashtag now is a know before you need to. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is just that communities, I think a lot of people used to think they wouldn't be impacted by mass violence, and now people, including me, are very afraid of it all the time. And so it's just really important that we make folks aware that we have resources that can help them think ahead. We have resources. I think of this morning getting information out to Orange, California. Um, We were able to do that, you know, overnight and this morning. That's the kind of work 
that our center does is to support communities and help build um, a sense of communities. And, and the most important thing is just to recognize that communities have to be proactively engaged, not only just once a year during Crime Victims Rights Week, but every single day and um, every single day recognizing that victims' needs are going to be there every single day. Awesome. I mean, that's that's a clear, really terrific answer, Anne. Thanks. I mean, it really sort of gives perspective. Dean, it sounds like you wanted to uh, to chime in. Yeah, well, I was breathing heavy yeah. <laughs> uh, because I wanted to uh, to make the comment that uh, the reason that, that our center was uh, formed in the first place was a recognition by the Office for Victims of Crime, which is basically the lead agency in most crime victim issues, including mass violence that the uh, tempo of mass violence incidents and the persistent long-term effects of mass violence, not only on the direct victims and survivors, but on the communities as a whole and fear of mass violence, which is inhabiting uh, many of us and keeping us from, from feeling free to go about our lives even before the pandemic did. Um, that OVC uh, established us largely because they realized that they needed some help. And so th this is really a cooperative agreement that we have with them. So we're able to leverage uh, what they can do because we're able to spend time on uh, thinking what needs to be done, organizing it, building trust, working with the communities, and, uh, and, and coming up with resources there. But we work with them. We work with their OVC TTAC uh, technical uh, assistance people, too. So, I, I mean, I think it's important to communicate to everybody that mass violence is such a big problem that is so broad, affects so many people that uh, no one person or agency can do it by themselves. So we need to establish the trust with people. We need to work with communities, and then we need to come up with these resources to help uh, the actual victims and survivors, and as well as the whole communities. And, and Dan, I, I just want to add, um, if we didn't have the U.S. Department of Justice Office for Victims of Crime, we wouldn't have a National Crime Victims Rights Week. Um, so much of what has come along in 40 years in our field is because of the leadership mm -hmm. of OVC, not just in supporting our National Mass Violence Victimization Resource Center, but they provide uh, guidance and support in every single aspect of violent crime uh, and victimization. And, and, and they are indeed the, the mothership of victim services. So I, I know that everyone on this podcast is super grateful to OBC for its just ongoing um, support and, and leadership and, and actually being quite visionary mm -hmm. um, in looking at what, what's ahead for the victim assistance field. Absolutely. Uh, Aurelia, any final thoughts that you wanted to, to add? I think my last thought uh, around all of this is about how do we promote collaboration and partnerships among our local, state, national, tribal, and federal agencies in line with what you said and you're talking about the, the visionary aspects of OVC and other, and how do we do that as well with community-based organizations to ensure that our communities are ready to respond and that we really work with communities around issues of resiliency and making certain that our work is done uh, to reflect and respect diversity among survivors whether by age, gender, wherever they live, whatever their culture, whatever their ethnicity, 
whatever their race, their disability or ability and or their sexual orientation that we provide services that are genuine and that meet the needs and put people back on that road to recovery. What a, what a great final comment. Thanks, Aurelia. I, I want to thank Aurelia Sansbell and Seymour and Dean Kilpatrick for uh, being a part of this edition of the MVP, the official podcast of the National Mass Violence Victimization Resource Center. Um, we're really excited about National Crime Victims Rights Week this year. For those folks who just might want more information about uh, what's going on in their community or nationwide with National Crime Victims Rights Week, the best place to get information about that is probably the uh, Office for Victims of Crime website, which is www.ovc.gov. And you can find out lots of information there about how different communities are celebrating the week and recognizing the week and so forth. And you can also find information about what the National Mass Violence Victimization Resource Center is doing for Victims' Rights Week at www.nmvvrc.org. The last thing I'll say is we've talked a lot about building trust and uh, engaging communities and lots of different aspects of Victims' Rights Week. One of the, one of the things that victims themselves and, and people who want to help victims need is, is a guide and an aid in, in helping their own resilience. And shameless plug alert, the National Mass Violence Victimization Resource Center has created a smartphone app called Transcend NMVC, which does a pretty darn good job of that. And you can find the app in both the uh, Android and the Apple app stores. Um, by searching for Transcend NMVC, and uh, you can find lots of information in there about how to begin the road to recovery after a, an exposure to mass violence, particularly, but any kind of criminal victimization uh, more broadly. Um, Anne, Aurelia, Dean, thank you so much for being a part of this special edition of the MVP, and happy National Crime Victims Rights Week. Thank you.